The sermon text for today will be Exodus 21, 1 through 11, and 22, 21 through 27. So two portions that are separated a bit. I hope you'll understand the reason for it soon. Exodus 21, 1 through 11, 22, 21 through 27. And the New Testament reading will be Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And as the children are getting back to their seats, I would encourage the congregation to come to the afternoon service. It's not a repeat of this one. In that service, we sing a little, we pray corporately, and I preach catechetically. And just about every week, I think, after I get done writing that catechetical sermon, I say to my wife, this is so important, I think, for us to do this, to preach catechetically, because here the Christian faith is consistently put before the congregation. You do know that it is not difficult for churches to go astray. Did you know that? Uh, it's, it's very easy for churches to lose their way and for the Christian faith to be corrupted. And one of the things that we must do is uh, to consistently preach the truths of the Christian faith so that they are not lost in this congregation and so that they are a testimony to the world. So, brothers and sisters, I'm glad that you're here. Of course, please come to the afternoon service as well where we work through the great doctrines of the faith together. Now for the reading of God's most holy word, Exodus 21. Starting in verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Uh, This is God speaking to Moses. Set these rules before Israel, he says. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do, If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment. Of money. Now let us go to chapter 22 and look at verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. I'll read now from Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, living in that Roman context. He says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, 
doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In the previous sermon I provided you with an overview of Exodus 21.1 through 23.19. In this large section of scripture we learn about civil laws given given to Israel by God and through Moses after God redeemed Israel from Egypt and as he entered into a covenant with them at Sinai. And one question you might ask is this, why civil laws? Why civil laws? Why not the moral law of the Ten Commandments only? Well, moral laws do apply to individuals, to all individuals. It is by the moral law that all men and women will be judged at the end of time, if not in Christ. But we must remember that God redeemed the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage not to live as individuals, but to make a great nation of them, and nations need civil laws. Nations need civil laws because of the corruptions that remain within people. Civil laws, if they are good and just, they take the moral law of God as revealed in nature and even more clearly in Scripture, and establish what the penalties will be for crimes committed against persons and even for other things in Old Covenant Israel. Not every violation of God's moral law should be considered a crime, mind you. Have you ever thought about that? Not every violation of God's moral law should be considered a crime. It wasn't that way in Old Covenant Israel. As a nation, not every violation of the moral law was criminal, nor should it be that way in any other nation. It is a sin for a little child to disrespect their parents, but it is not a crime. It is a sin to tell a lie, but not a crime, unless an injury is done to another by the lie. It is a sin to covet your neighbor's possessions but not a crime. On and on I could go. Civil laws establish what crimes are in a nation and they also establish the punishments according to the principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. In other words, civil laws are to be concerned with crimes against persons and with matters of restitution. Stated in yet another way, civil laws are to be concerned with matters of justice. Men and women are to be treated in a way that is just and right. Their person and their property are to be respected. And when an injury is done to a person or their property, restitution is to be made by the guilty party. This is what is to happen within nations. Societies will be able to flourish and function only if this is true. Nations need civil laws. And because God was making Israel into a great nation, He added civil laws to the moral law which He gave to them at Mount Sinai. Whenever we consider the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel, I want you to keep something in mind. Old Covenant Israel was a holy nation like no other nation on earth. We can learn a great deal about matters of morality and justice from the civil law code which God gave to them. But their law code was peculiar or unique to them in at least two ways. One, Old Covenant Israel was given civil laws pertaining to the right and proper worship of God under the Old Covenant. For example, idolatry was a crime in Old Covenant Israel. But in common nations like ours, 
that operate under the terms, not of the Mosaic Covenant, but the Noahic Covenant, civil laws ought to deal not with matters of worship, except to leave men free to worship. They should deal with crimes against persons only. Is our government to be concerned with matters of proper worship, brothers and sisters? The proper observance of the Lord's table, let's say, or the proper application of baptism? No. Our government should keep their hands off of that, leave us free to worship according to God's Word. But in Old Covenant Israel, these things were all united together. Uh, The government of Israel was to be concerned not only with crimes against persons, but also matters of worship. Two, the punishments attached to the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel were sometimes unusually strict. Again, this is because they were a holy nation. The kingdom of God was prefigured on earth amongst them. The temple of God was in the midst of them, and there the glory of God was manifest. So we must be open to the possibility, therefore, that the civil punishments attached to violations, even of the second table of the law, were in some ways unusually strict. Remembering these two things, I think, will help us to guard against the error of thinking that we should take the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel and apply them unaltered and in exhaustive detail to our nation or to some other nation today. Now, brothers and sisters, you've probably noticed how often I have warned against the misuse of the law of Moses. First in our consideration of the Ten Commandments, now in our consideration of these civil laws given to Israel. Have you noticed this? Uh, Throughout our consideration of the Ten Commandments, I have taken almost as much time to say, this is not how the law is to be used, as I have taken to say, this is how it is, is to be used. There is great danger in misusing the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, but now that we are studying the civil laws, the same warnings must be proclaimed. We need to love God's law in its entirety, but guide rails are needed so that we do not slip into some error, be it legalism or some other. We are studying the law of Moses, brothers and sisters. We are studying the law of Moses in its entirety because the law is good. Notice we are not skipping over this difficult portion of Scripture that seems so foreign to us. We are studying the law of Moses because the law is good. But the law is good provided that we interpret and apply it lawfully. That is to use the language of Paul in 1 Timothy 1.8. The law is good only if we interpret it properly and use it properly. If we misuse the law of God, misinterpret it, it becomes something that is bad for us. The law is good in and of itself, but it must be used in the right way. So please bear with me as I continue to install guardrails while providing teaching on the law of Moses. In brief, I do hope you all agree that on the one hand, these civil laws which were given by God through Moses to Old Covenant Israel are not binding on us. But on the other hand, they are of great use to us as we seek to grow in our understanding of matters pertaining to to morality and universal justice. Our confession of faith communicates both of these truths well in chapter 19, paragraph 4. It speaks of the civil laws of the old Mosaic covenant, saying this, judicial or civil laws expired together with the state of that people, that is old covenant Israel, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution. So do you hear the principle here? The civil law code, the judicial laws given to Old Covenant Israel, when we read them, when we consider them, we must understand that on the one hand, they have expired. 
They have passed away together with the Old Covenant and are not binding upon us in the way that they were binding upon them. But listen, our confession of faith continues with these words, their general equity only being of moral use. What is this principle of general equity? It is the idea that as we consider the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel, we might learn a great deal about morality in them. Uh, The civil laws of Old Covenant Israel were rooted in what? God's moral law. So as we see the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel, we see the the moral law of God uh, fleshed out, amplified, applied to that nation. Can we learn from this? Of course we can learn from this. We learn a great deal, as I have already said, about issues of morality and issues of justice. Helpful to us in our personal lives, helpful to us in our church life, helpful to us in our political lives as well. The civil laws of God are not binding upon us any longer. The old covenant has passed away, but they are still for us. They're still to be considered. And brothers and sisters, I I implore you to, to be patient with this as we consider the civil laws. You know, if you have it in your mind that good preaching is going to involve three points with three applications, one for each, or three illustrations, one for each, and then some application. You're not going to do well here. It's going to be difficult for you. And I'm not apologizing for that. I don't know where that idea came from. Preaching, in my mind, is sometimes a lot more than that. I'm reading the text of Scripture and I'm explaining it to you. That's what I'm doing. And yes, I will make some suggestions for application, and on the very rare occasion, I'll I'll use illustrations. I should do that more. I'll I'll admit it's a weakness. But brothers and sisters, just rise to the occasion, please. Focus. Listen. We're reading Scripture, and we're asking, what does it mean? These civil laws, are they binding on us? Not in the way they, they were for all covenant Israel, but it's God's Word, brothers and sisters. This is God's Word we are considering. We're going to be considering two sections, Exodus 21, 1 through 11, and 22, 21 through 27. Now, why are we considering these two sections together? This is strange, right? This is unusual. Uh, They're separated in the book of Exodus. But I trust you will remember what was said last week regarding the structure of this section of Exodus, which contains case laws. There are ten parts in this section, and they are structured in a chiastic way. The first portion matches the last. The second portion matches the second to last, and so on. And so I thought it would be best to preach on the corresponding parts together. The first section and the last section of this portion of the book of Exodus is what we are considering today. So what is the theme that unifies the first and last portion of this section of the case laws given to Old Covenant Israel? The first and last portions of this section demand that the poor, weak, and vulnerable within society be treated in a way that is just. The poor, the weak, and the vulnerable are not to be exploited. They are not to be oppressed. They are not to be taken advantage of. They are to be treated in a way that is just. In other words, Old Covenant Israel, and indeed I would say all nations of the earth, ought to be concerned for the poor, weak, and vulnerable in their midst. They must be concerned to treat them in a just way. They must never to take advantage of them. Slaves or servants, if you prefer, and, and by the way, I do think that Servants is a more helpful term here, even though the ESV says slaves. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment. Slaves or or bond servants or indentured servants, if you prefer, were to be treated justly within Old Covenant Israel. 
That is what is commanded in the first part of our text for today. And so too, the sojourner, widow, orphan, and poor. The strong were never to oppress the weak. All men and women, no matter their position or status in society, were to be treated with dignity as image bearers of God. And this idea should sound familiar to you. Not long ago, we learned that this is what the fifth of the Ten Commandments requires. The moral command to honor father and mother requires all men to preserve the honor and perform the duties belonging to everyone in their various places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. That is Baptist Catechism number 69. And here I am making this observation that these civil laws given to Israel that we are considering today are a specific application of that universal moral principle. Do you see how this works? Very simple command. Honor your father and mother. What does that mean? Well, we learn more about what it means as we consider these civil laws. Uh, the, the servants in Old Covenant Israel were to be honored. So too the sojourners, the, the, the poor, the vulnerable in society. This is an application, an outworking of this moral principle communicated to us in the fifth commandment. So now I ask you, do these case laws of Exodus 21, 2-11 and 22, 1-27, do they apply to all nations including ours? Do they apply... If you are paying attention, you will say yes and no. First, no. They are not meant to be taken as they are and adopted without alteration and applied with exact strictness by any other nation besides Old Covenant Israel. But now for the yes, and I wish to place emphasis on the yes. Yes, every nation on earth has been called by God to enact and enforce just laws. And we may learn a great deal about matters of justice from these civil laws which God gave to Israel, all of which are rooted in God's moral law. Though we are not to adopt Israel's law code as our law code, for their circumstance was in some ways unique, we had better be sure that our laws are just. Stated in a negative way, any nation that allows or perpetuates injustice, especially the unjust and oppressive treatment of the weak and vulnerable in their midst, will come under God's condemnation. For all nations are accountable to God who sees all and always judges rightly. There's a lot of talk today about social justice. Social justice is a hot topic within the world. It is also a hot topic within the church. Should we as Americans and should we as Christians be concerned to promote justice within our society? Of course, we should. But please do not forget this very important, and it should be a rather obvious observation, Before we can promote and uphold justice within our society, we must know what justice is. Before we can promote and uphold justice within our society, we must know what justice is. And before we know what justice is, we must know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and evil. In other words, we must first know something of God's moral law as revealed in nature and ever more clearly in Scripture. We must know this, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is moral. We must know this before we can get on with the task of building a just society. I find myself repulsed by most of what I hear coming from the so-called social justice warriors of our time. Not because I am opposed to justice, but because I am opposed to their understanding of what is just. It seems to me that many in our day have an understanding of justice that is rooted not in God's moral law as revealed in nature and scripture, but in the understanding of the world put forth by figures like Darwin and Marx. Do you see the problem here? 
Should we love justice? Should we pursue it? Of course. But we need to know what justice is. We need to know what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is moral. In other words, it seems clear to me that the social justice movement that is predominant today, at least among the elites in our institutions and promoted by the media, is rooted not in God, nor in His revelation of Himself in nature, and especially in Christ and in Scripture, but in an atheistic and morally relativistic understanding of the world. This is a problem, brothers and sisters. We as Christians should not be opposed to justice. We should be for it more than any others. But we must be concerned that our justice, our view of it, be rooted in the truth of God's Word, the truth of what is morally right and wrong according to Him, you see. And He has revealed His law, both in nature and ever more clearly in the Holy Scriptures. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we must have nothing to do with this distorted form of justice. We must seek justice in our land, though. We must do it. We must fight against injustice when we see it and when we have the power to do something about it. And yes, indeed, you would be a fool to seek to promote justice or to fight against injustice without first understanding what it is. And you will do much more harm than good if you advocate for a form of justice that is rooted in anything other than God who is Himself holy, righteous, and just, and His moral law, which He has revealed to us. You see, brothers and sisters, I think I've grown frustrated with um, perhaps the church in this country because so often Scripture texts like the one we are considering today are just cast to the side. Uh, The congregations themselves are to blame too because many Christians are not patient enough to listen to preaching like this. You know, they want nothing to do with it. Get on with things that matter to us. This should matter to us. I think as a result, evangelicals in this country in in particular have, have, have just been very immature regarding matters of morality and justice. We, we have not thought, and care, thought carefully about these things. We, we need to change this, brothers and sisters. We need to love God's law. We need to love all of it. We need to think carefully and meditate deeply upon the law of God upon the Holy Scriptures, even when it is difficult to do so, even when it requires a lot of thought and concentration. I think you would all agree that the Ten Commandments are a great help to us. And here I am wanting to convince you that the civil laws which God gave to Old Covenant Israel are a great help to us too. For these laws, though they are not for us in the way that they were for them, they are perfectly just laws. Exodus 21, 1-11 contains laws for Israel concerning the just treatment of slaves. I think you can see that I have my work cut out for me with this text that is before us today. The text is admittedly difficult, but in my opinion it is difficult not so much because of what it says, but because of the presuppositions that we bring to it. I'm afraid it is difficult for modern people to read the word slave without thinking of the kind of slavery that was practiced in this land not long ago. And please hear me, the kind of slavery that was practiced in this country not long ago was unjust. I'm sure there were exceptions to the rule, but in general, the slavery that existed in this land was built upon the idea that some men and women were inherently inferior to others, Men and women did not choose to be slaves, but were often stolen into slavery. They were often badly treated and even abused. And opportunity was rarely given for upward movement 
or for eventual freedom. The kind of slavery that was practiced in this land not long ago was racist, it was brutal, it was oppressive, it was unjust, and worthy of our condemnation. All of that is very important to acknowledge, I think. But this morning, I will also ask you to consider the possibility that not all forms of slavery or servitude are unjust. Slavery can be unjust. Indeed, we might even say that slavery is often unjust. And this is because the strong do tend to oppress the weak in this sinful world. But slavery is not inherently or unnecessarily unjust. In other words, it is not at all impossible to imagine a situation wherein one human being willingly or out of necessity commits himself or herself to the service of another human being for a time, for the betterment of their position in life, and are there treated with kindness, fairness, and in a way that is just, so much so that they do not want to leave when the opportunity is given. We can at least imagine a situation like this. You, You may think that this is unrealistic or wishful thinking, and perhaps it is. But the point that I am here making is that the civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel demanded that servants be treated justly. Slavery or servitude was a reality in that agrarian society, and the Hebrews were forbidden from treating their servants in an oppressive way. They were commanded to be different from the nations, in other words. In this regard, they were to treat their servants, the weak and vulnerable in their midst, in a way that was just. Consider this, brothers and sisters. All societies must address the question of what to do with the poor in their midst. All societies must address the question of what to do with the poor in their midst. There will always be rich and poor amongst us. Some are born into poverty. Some fall into poverty through circumstances outside their control. Others fall into poverty through foolish living. And some may do wrong to another. Perhaps they harm another person bodily or damage their property or steal from them and the law requires that restitution be paid. As I have said, every society must deal with the problem of poverty. The question is how will we treat the poor? How will we show honor and kindness to them? How will we provide for our fellow image bearers if they are unable to provide for themselves and if they are able to work what what opportunities or avenues should be afforded to them for the betterment of their position in life. All societies, if they are just, will care for the poor in their midst. They must deal with the problem of poverty. I think I could spend a great deal of time critiquing our approach here in this nation. I am concerned that things like our minimum wage laws, our welfare system, do in fact do more harm than good. I'm concerned that inexperienced and unskilled workers are sometimes pushed out of the workforce by minimum wage laws as businesses are forced to cut back on employees or to automate. I'm concerned that our welfare system, though it may appear to be carrying on the surface, does in fact hinder its recipients by de-incentivizing work in one way or another. It seems to me that the entire approach is very impersonal and inhumane. Those who fall destitute are not drawn in close to those who are successful and prosperous in society so that they might learn from them and through them find a pathway to prosperity for themselves. But in fact, in our system, those who fall destitute are often pushed away and, and isolated in communities of their own. I think we could spend a great deal of time critiquing our approach in this nation to the problem of poverty. 
And I draw your attention to these possible weaknesses in our system, not so much to propose solutions now. It's a very large subject outside the scope of this sermon. But to, but to contrast the weaknesses of our system with the wisdom, justice, kindness, and compassion of the laws which God gave to Israel. You see, our temptation is to see the word slave and to say, oh, this is old-fashioned. You see, these people were primitive. We have advanced. We are modern now. We don't have such systems as these in our modern societies. I think it is a foolish approach. We need to see what kind of slavery this was, and we need to consider perhaps there was something very wise about this way of dealing with the problem of poverty in a society. Perhaps there was something, in fact, very compassionate about this way of doing things. Um, you see, we do tend to look back upon these ancient laws with a kind of chronological snobbery. We see ourselves as being advanced and civilized, but sometimes I wonder if we have not devolved, brothers and sisters, as a people, morally speaking. Just go ahead and look around. Drive down Florida Avenue and ask yourself the question, how are we doing, brothers and sisters? Just do it sometime. I don't know if we should have this, this arrogance about us. I think we are failing terribly in terms of um, our society and the problem of of poverty. I want for you to notice six things about the laws concerning the just treatment of slaves or servants in Old Covenant Israel. One, the slavery that is being addressed here in this passage was voluntary. When you buy a Hebrew slave, the text says, Hebrews were not sold into slavery by force but by choice. If a Hebrew fell destitute, one option for him or her would be to contract with a more wealthy and prosperous person or family to serve them in their estate for a time. In this way, they could pay off their debts by working as indentured servants. It may be that a father would even sell his daughter into this kind of servitude, I assume with her consent, so as to provide a better future for her. This form of slavery was not racially motivated. It was not inherently oppressive. And it was certainly not the result of, of man-stealing. In fact, if you look down to Exodus 21, 16, we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Do you hear that? So this is not oppressive in its origins. This is not one strong person going and taking someone who is weak by force and forcing them into this situation. That was punishable by death in Old Covenant Israel. Throughout the history of the world, men and women have come to be slaves through man-stealing, but this was utterly forbidden amongst the Hebrews and punishable by death. What was this form of slavery or servitude all about then? It was a solution to the problem of poverty and indebtedness in that culture. Those who fell destitute and indebted in society for one reason or another had this option. They could sell themselves into the service of another for a time. Perhaps they would receive their payment up front, Perhaps they would receive it as they worked. Perhaps they would receive it at the end of their agreed-upon time of service. The arrangements could differ. But in this way, they could um, get out of their indebtedness. They could escape their crushing poverty. And here, the law of Moses is concer concerned to ensure that those in this weak and vulnerable position be not exploited but honored. That is what this law is about. Those in this vulnerable position are never to be exploited. They are to be honored. They are to be treated in a just way. So then this form of slavery was voluntary. Two, slavery was to be limited in time for the Hebrews. Verse 2 continues saying, He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. This was not perpetual slavery. This was 
slavery for a time. There was a limit of six years. This follows, you will notice, the pattern of the weekly Sabbath. The servant was to work for six years, and in the seventh, he or she was to be released without any payment being required. Three, the family was to be honored in this arrangement. Verse three, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So the agreement to become an indentured servant was not to disrupt a family. If there was a family, the family was to be respected in this arrangement. Four, the investment of the one who purchased the servant was to be protected. You will notice this about the laws given to Israel. They are concerned that justice is shown to the poor and to the rich, to the weak and to the powerful. All are to be treated in a way that is just. And that is the case here. Verse 4 If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Here, the law is addressing a situation where a man comes to be a servant single and enters into marriage while a slave. So imagine this. It's a very particular thing that is being envisioned here in this law. Imagine this. The man has one year left on his contract and his new wife has five years remaining. How is this going to work? Is the wife to go free and to be released from her obligation to her master with her husband after one year? And then therefore the master loses out on what he has agreed to? Uh, Is the wife to go free with the husband? The law says no. In other words, the marriage does not make the agreement made between the woman's servant and her master null and void. This may sound strange to us, but really it's not at all complicated. If we use the term salary, it may be easier for us to see the justice in it. I wonder if you could imagine paying an employee up front for six years of work, only to have her leave after two or three because of some other arrangement that came in. You would say, that is unjust. That woman has stolen from this this boss of hers who paid her her salary up front. That is what is going on here. It does not disrupt the marriage bond. It only says that the marriage that takes place within the master's house is not to make null and void the contract previously agreed upon. It is here, it is here the, the, the property of, of the master that is being protected, and this is right and just. It is unjust to steal from the rich, you see. Five, if a servant found himself in a situation where life in his master's house was more desirable than than a life of independence, he could willingly commit himself to his master permanently. Verse 5, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Why would a man choose to be a slave in his master's house forever. Why would a man choose such a thing? Well, it is for the same reason that you have chosen to be a slave of Christ all the days of your life. By God's grace, you have come to see that Christ the Lord is good, kind, and loving. He is this kind of master, one that you willingly submit yourself to. He is a good, kind, and loving master, You see that life in his household is far better than life lived for yourself in the world. And that in Christ your future hopes are much, much brighter than if you would choose to go in your own way. You have experienced this kind of thing, haven't you, brothers and sisters? 
You are living in this world and you have come to see by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, that it is better to be a bondservant of Christ than to live in this world as a free man. And masters in Old Covenant Israel were to treat their servants in such a way that when the time came for freedom, it was at least possible that they would not want to leave. Were they free to leave after six years or after a shorter period of time if that was agreed upon? The answer is yes, but slaves were to be honored so much so that some would choose to stay if the prospects for their future were brighter in their master's household than if they were to take advantage of their freedom. Certainly good and loving masters and bondservants in Old Covenant Israel functioned as a picture of Christ who was to come and of His church whom He purchased with His blood. Those who chose to remain in their master's house for life would have their ear pierced to show that they were a servant for life. Such a strange thing to to us, right? Uh, This ceremony where the master brings the servant to either the door or the door frame of his house, takes an awl, which is like a big nail, and and puts it through the ear. He got his ear pierced. You know, we, we do this too in our society, don't we? Not for the same reasons. I remember hearing about this when I was a kid, thinking, that is so weird, you know, that is so strange. But really the symbolism here is powerful. The symbolism is powerful. It was the ear that was to be pierced. And what do we do with the ear except listen? When the ear of the bondservant was pierced, it signified his commitment to listen to the voice of his master all the days of his life. And to obey him. And where was his ear to be pierced? Not in some random location, but he was to be brought to the door or to the doorpost of his master's house. Isn't that interesting? Certainly other places could have been used, but he was to be brought straight to this place, the door or the doorpost of his master's house. And this signified the bondservant's permanent attachment to that household. This man was now attached to this household in a permanent way. Again, this was the servant's choice. But when I consider this, when I think of it, I think of it as a very warm and loving thing. Consider how good a master would have to be to his servant to move him to make such a commitment. The man is free to go. At the end of six years, free to go. And yet the master says, no, I would prefer to stay. You are so good to me and my prospects are so bright here in your household. I want to stay here. I want to be permanently attached to you and to your family and to your household And I will serve you all the days of my life, for you have been kind to me. Even if it was not as warm and romantic as I imagine it to be, certainly it cannot be called unjust, brothers and sisters. So many look at this text, the skeptics, the critics, and they say this is unjust. It was not unjust. Sixthly, the civil laws of Israel concerning the treatment of slaves or servants were especially concerned to provide protection for women. Verse 7, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So we see here in verse 7 that a distinction was made between male and female servants. Greater protections were afforded to female servants. I think you know why this is. We might even say that the female servants were even more vulnerable than the males. Verse 8, If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Stick with me here, brothers and sisters. This is an an interesting verse. I think it's a very important one. Let me explain it. 
It was possible that a master would enter into marriage with a female servant. If she did not please him for some reason, he was not to sell her to a foreign people, but was allowed to allow her to be redeemed. And then the text says, since he has broken faith with her. This seems so foreign to us. I understand that. Other English translations say, because he has dealt deceitfully with her, or because he has because of his unfairness to her. Here is something very important that I want you to understand about the civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel. I think if you get this, you'll be able to answer many objections that people raise concerning the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel. Though it is true that Israel's civil laws were in some ways uncommonly strict, Blatant violations of the first table of the moral law were crimes and adultery was punishable by death, for example. It is also true that not every sin, not every distortion of God's ideal was criminalized and punished civilly. Are you with me? Sins, some sins and perversions of God's ideal for things were tolerated even in the society of Old Covenant Israel. I think this is crucial to understand. Some sins, some distortions of God's ideal for things were tolerated and regulated even in Old Covenant Israel. You understand how this works in our society, don't you? Again, I've made the obvious point, not all sins are crimes. It is a sin for a child to lie to their parents. Yes, it is, but it is not a crime. It was not a crime in Old Covenant Israel, and it is not a crime in our nation, nor should it be. Men and women will stand before God and be judged for every sin. When will they do this? When will God judge every sin? Does He do it now? Through our our judicial systems, thanks be to God, He does not. We'd all be gone. (laughs) When will He do this? At the end of time. At the final judgment. What law will we be judged by? His moral law. But until then... God does restrain evil in this world. So so all men, if not in Christ, will be judged at the end of time by Christ, by His moral law. But until then, God does restrain evil in this world, in part through civil governments, where crimes against persons are punished, not sins necessarily. In other words, the justice that is upheld here on earth right now is only partial. When will justice be upheld perfectly so? End of time, final judgment, by Christ. All men, not in Christ, judged by the moral law. Do we have justice on earth here today? Yes, in part. God is restraining evil in the world right now, in part, through civil governments. Through civil governments. It's true of our civil government. It was true also of the civil government of old covenant Israel. Say, what does that have to do with our verse? Well, clearly this verse that seems so strange to us in Exodus 21, 8 through 9, clearly this verse is considering a situation where a man does wrong to a woman. Do you see it? This is considering a situation where a man does wrong to a woman. The text explicitly says that he has broken faith with her or To use another English translation, he has dealt deceitfully with her. He has treated her unfairly. 
Has this man in this hypothetical situation sinned against God? We would say, yes, he has. But his actions are not criminalized here by the law of Moses. The law that is given here does not criminalize criminalize his immoral behavior, but it does provide protection for the woman to ensure that she is not treated in an unjust way. That is what is going on in this text. This husband who has broken faith with his wife, who has dealt deceitfully with her, who has dealt unfairly with her, did not have the right to sell his wife, whom he had originally entered into a contractual agreement with as a servant. Instead, she was to be set free through redemption. The civil laws of Israel, like ours, did not criminalize immorality. If everything immoral were criminalized within that society, then that society would not be able to function. We have said that Israel was a holy nation. You understand what I mean by that, right? Israel was a distinct nation, a unique nation, a a nation unlike all the other nations on planet earth. This does not mean that Old Covenant Israel was filled with purely holy people. Not everyone in Old Covenant Israel was regenerate. There There were many wicked men and women in Old Covenant Israel. Read the Old Testament and see. And so the civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel were given in part to restrain wickedness, to restrain sin. God tolerated much, in other words. I want you to listen to another example of this dynamic that is more well known and easily understood in the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel. And here I'm referring to the laws regarding divorce. Did God permit divorce in Old Covenant Israel? He did. And why did He permit it? Christ actually tells us so explicitly. Why did He permit it? The scriptures are clear that divorce is not the ideal. Divorce is not God's original design. Divorce was permitted because of the hardness of men's hearts. That is what Christ says. The laws of the Old Covenant allowed for divorce, and they regulated divorce, providing protection, especially for women, because of the wickedness of the hearts of men, even within Old Covenant Israel. So we must keep all of this in mind as we consider the civil laws of the Old Testament. Two more scenarios are put forth regarding the special protection afforded to female indentured servants. First, in verse 9b, we read, If he designates her for his son, that is, if he designates this woman to be the wife of his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. He was to deal with her as a daughter, not as servant. Second, in verse 10, we read, If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. As you probably already know, polygamy was also tolerated in Old Covenant Israel civil law. Is polygamy God's design or ideal for marriage? No. The two are to become one flesh. But polygamy was tolerated in Old Covenant Israel given its prominence in the ancient world. It was tolerated and regulated. So if the man took to himself a second wife, he was not to diminish the provisions that he promised to make for his first wife. It's a matter of justice. The wife was owed these things. She was not to be neglected or left destitute. Again, I say I think we must keep this principle of toleration in mind as we consider the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel. Though it is true that Israel was a holy nation, this does not mean that they were pure They were special, yes. They were set apart to God in a unique way. 
But as you know, there were many who were unbelieving, unregenerate, and even very wicked in the midst of them. Israel's civil laws functioned, therefore, in a similar way to ours. The civil laws of Israel did not aim to eradicate all sin, but they did seek to restrain it so that a degree of justice might be upheld within that society, and so that through this society the Messiah might come into the world in the fullness of time. I'm afraid that we sometimes ask too much of Israel's civil laws, and therefore we misinterpret them. They were given to restrain sin, not to eradicate it. I'll say one last thing about these laws regulating the treatment of indentured servants. I forget who said this. I should have looked it up. But we should remember that the past is a foreign country. They do things different there. We must remember that. The past is a foreign country. They do things different there. Uh, This was a different time, a different culture, a different economy. And we need to keep that in mind and be gracious, I think, and not snobbish concerning the culture and customs of old covenant Israel and the laws that were given to them to regulate them in that time. You know, this just came to my mind as well, and I'll add it before moving on to the next portion of the sermon. Have you ever noticed how um, amongst the, the elite in our society, those in academia who critique Christianity and critique the scriptures, they also love to... Um, to appreciate the cultures of the world and the fact that they do things differently in those cultures and to not be judgmental to them. I, sometimes I think you're, you're hypocritical, aren't you? You'll do that for the cultures of the world that exist today or for other cultures in the past. You'll, you'll appreciate their distinctives and their diversity and uh, we don't want to be uh, uh, you know, uh, arrogant in our Western culture, they say. And then when it comes to the Bible, they critique it harshly. This was a different time. And the laws that were given to Old Covenant Israel governed Israel in a different time. The laws are just, even though they might seem very foreign and strange to us. Now, I've left very little time for Exodus 22, 21 through 27, and really I think it is fine. This section is much less controversial, much easier to understand. And I want to read it again to you and make only a a few brief remarks. Exodus 22, 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's pretty straightforward and clear, isn't it? The Lord was going to judge Old Covenant Israel with a special kind of strictness, I think, because of the fact that they were set apart as His peculiar people. I continue to read now. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So you can see how this section corresponds to the first regarding the just treatment of servants, can't you? This is all about protections being afforded to the weak and vulnerable within society. God is saying to Israel, hey, I'm watching. I'm watching you. If you dare oppress these weak and vulnerable members of society, I will see it and I will bring my judgment against you. He reminds Israel that he is compassionate. Notice a few things about this text here uh, very briefly. One, though it is true that that Hebrew, uh, that special protections... Uh, were given to Hebrew citizens in this laws, in these laws, 
excuse me for stammering through that, though it is true that special protections were given to Hebrew citizens in these laws, foreigners were not to be oppressed either. The Hebrews were to remember their time in Egypt and how they were unjustly treated as slaves in that land. They were not to do the same to the foreigners in their midst. No oppression is what is called for. No oppression, just treatment of all. Two, the Hebrews were warned against taking advantage of the vulnerable in their midst, especially widows and fatherless children. Notice that the Lord himself threatens them. He will hear their cries for help and will take vengeance. Three, if a Hebrew was to lend money to a fellow Hebrew who was poor, interest was not to be charged. As you probably know, this is one way that the rich may take advantage of the poor through charging interest, especially exorbitant interest on loans. And this was forbidden amongst the Hebrews. This was especially forbidden when lending to the poor and the destitute. Four, concerning collateral taken for loans given, if the person was so poor that no other collateral could be given besides something as essential as their cloak. Imagine this. Someone is so poor that the only thing they can give as collateral for the loan they are receiving is their own jacket. That person is truly destitute. They're giving away something essential to them. The cloak in which they sleep is being given as collateral for the loan. What does the law of God say? That cloak is to be returned to that person at night so that they have something warm to sleep in. You can see here that those who were wealthy in society had a special obligation to care as much as they had opportunity for the poor and the vulnerable in their midst. Five, the Hebrews were to have compassion on the vulnerable people in their midst, be they slaves, sojourners, orphans, widows, or the poor, because God himself is compassionate. And that is the reason that is given in verse 27. The Lord reminds them, for I am compassionate, he says. You know, brothers and sisters, as I consider God's moral law, along with the civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel, and compare them to what I see in our culture today, I'll admit that I feel a bit sickened and overwhelmed by the immorality, injustice, and oppression that is so prevalent in our culture. Do you feel this sometimes? I have to be careful mentally, to be honest with you, uh, to not... Uh, dwell on this so much and to uh, lose sight of, of God's sovereignty and of His plans and purposes of it and, of, and, his, and of His workings in this world. It, it, is, it is discouraging to see the immorality, the injustice, and the oppression that exists all around us. In a way, it is all to be expected because we do live in a fallen world and God's law does have a way of magnifying sin, doesn't it? The question is, what should we do about it? Three things. One, brothers and sisters, I would exhort you to be diligent in prayer and to work to promote justice within our society as you have opportunity and according to your giftedness, giftedness and callings. This is one application. Pray. Be fervent in prayer. And as you have opportunity and according to your giftedness and calling, do seek to promote justice within our society. Two, I say to you, be sure that you treat others justly. This is personal application. Not political, but personal. Be sure to treat others justly. Take no part in the injustice or oppression of our culture. Show kindness to the needy around you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Three, I say, long for Christ's return. 
and the new heavens and earth that He will bring in which righteousness dwells. Live for that world, brothers and sisters. Store up treasures there. Be good sojourners now. Be good citizens in this land. Do not neglect to do good in this place where the Lord has planted you. But remember, this is not your home. Long for and live for the inheritance which Christ has purchased by His obedient life, His shed blood, and His victorious resurrection. Be sure that you are found in Him, united to Him, By faith, for there is salvation in no other name. Do you long to live in a land where there is perfect justice, where there is no more oppression at all? Then be sure that you are found in Christ. For that world will be brought into existence only through Him. When He comes again, He will bring that world with Him, the new heavens and new earth. That is where our hope is found. Amen? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your law, which is perfectly righteous, holy, and just. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it. O God, I pray that you would have mercy upon this land and upon our society, O Lord. The problems seem to be so big. Those with power seem to be out of reach. May we take comfort in the fact that you are the sovereign Lord. We pray that you would have mercy upon this land, O Lord, that you would bring justice to this place so that we might live at peace and with prosperity, worldly speaking. Oh God, I pray that you would help us as your people to obey your law, your moral law from the heart. Help us to treat our neighbors as you have called us to with love. Help us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Oh God, I do pray that you would strengthen our faith. We thank you that we have hope that goes beyond this world and beyond the grave. Lord, help us to cling to Christ to live for Him in this world as we sojourn in this place that is not our home. Help us to store up treasures in heaven. In Christ's name we pray and all of God's people say.